Good morning, Christ Central. Uh, we will be continuing in our series in Acts. Uh, if we can turn our Bibles to Acts chapter 4 or look at the screen. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. The title of today's sermon will be Of One Heart and Soul. Now the number, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had needed. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear God, would you have mercy upon me, a sinner? Would you have mercy, all of us who have gathered together? For we bring to this place the burdens, the shame, the guilt, all the things, our God, that make our heart heavy into this place. But we know, Lord God, that you, you alone provide the grace, the mercy, and the healing to grant us freedom in you and the finished work of Christ. And so we delight in that. We ask for more of that in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the clearest witnesses of the church to the world was its unity and especially how it dealt with the same divisions that they would see all across the world. If the church's oneness in soul and heart was important to the witness of the early church, then we have to believe how much more must it be to continue today as the church. So the outline of today's sermon will be the first point of one heart and soul and description of the church, two, Barnabas and Ananias, and three, Jesus and Barnabas, of one heart and soul. You know, the early church was a persecuted church, as Pastor Owen showed us in the text. But the early church, because it was a persecuted church, it was also a praying church all the more. They prayed for boldness, to not live in fear because they were persecuted, but instead, in spite of being persecuted, to speak of their witness of Christ's resurrection, that it was far more powerful than their fear. It was far more powerful than what they were facing every day. What would be the clearest witness to the world if those within the church believing in the resurrection lived in unity as those empowered to treat one another differently than the rest of the world, with dignity, with justice, with mercy and love? that those created in the image of God deserves that, and if they aren't getting that in the world, that they would be able to get that within the church. And so people were flooding the church, the poor, especially the marginalized and the persecuted. 
The ongoing persecution threatened the witness of the early church, but there was also a pressure, an internal pressure of caring for all the people who were being persecuted, the poor and the needy who were coming into the church. You know, money, like today, was a central cause for the classism and the division among the people. It was most plain to those who were underprivileged and those who were oppressed. Classism that crushed and oppressed the poor that they would never experience the comforts and luxuries that they watched as the rich people enjoyed them. It was also the privilege that was offered to the rich, so much so that they also fiercely protected it. But the money which divided, oppressed, and separated became something that the power of the Holy Spirit used to transform the church. The church would be found to be salty, bright, and beautiful because it resisted the compulsion to separate themselves over money and the comfort and privilege that it provided, or the lack of for many of them. It would have been so jarring to the poor when they walked into the church, noticing that the rich of the church were so different. They were not holding so tightly to their wealth that they didn't use their wealth to oppress them, the poor, but something that they sold for the love of the vulnerable among them. That would have been jarring for them. They would ask, why would rich people do this? Why would they give up their own comfort and wealth for us? In this current climate of contentious division over masks, over vaccines, social justice, women's rights, political alignment, in this current cancel culture that would find those we disagree with to be so easily dismissed and canceled, It should also intrigue us and capture us when we read this text and we read that the church was of one heart and soul. What does that even look like these days? Do you remember the last time we were united in soul and heart? We don't see it in politics. We don't see it in the news. We actually choose a news channel that we only watch and we don't watch the other because it doesn't agree with us. Social media, churches, and even our families We are so ready. We're just brimming with readiness to cut off anyone who won't align with our beliefs and our thoughts when we share them. Why? Because we absolutely believe without a shadow of a doubt what we hold to be true is the most logical and coherent and the other people unthoughtful, unnuanced, and we may even use terms like unbiblical and uncaring. Right now, we are deep within cancel culture, and all in the name of tolerance. That you could have a record of giving and loving and doing life right, and you say one wrong thing, and all of a sudden, everyone's out to cancel you. The greatest irony and hypocrisy of the tolerance culture today is that if you are not going to agree with anyone about what they are tolerant about, then you yourself won't be tolerated. You can be canceled because you are not tolerant the way other people are. So how amazingly relevant is it for us today, for such a time as this, for us to see that a church that could have divided over persecution and what they were facing were of one heart and soul. It's not that we shouldn't have convictions. It's how we treat those whom we vehemently disagree with. 
Dr. Keller said this, tolerance isn't about having beliefs or convictions. It's about how your beliefs lead you to treat people who disagree with you. So this chapter's address of property, money, goes far beyond just financial stewardship. It is that, but it is far more than that. It answers, in answer to their prayer, the early church gathered and cried out as they were being persecuted. The believers were freshly filled with the power of the Spirit of God. The description of those who are filled and empowered by the Spirit of God is unity of one heart and of one soul. The start, the seed, the initial catalyst of this union was none other than prayer. They sat and they used the ordinary means of grace that God granted them, and they prayed. And when they prayed together for God's grace, the Spirit of God was poured on the church, and it changed things. They were no longer living the way that the world did, that the poor, when they came into the church, saw something far different from the rich, and the rich were able to love the poor and the marginalized. This united the church in its one singular desire to become a witness to the world for Christ's resurrection. Because doesn't it make sense? If Christ actually resurrected, shouldn't it make a difference compared to the world who doesn't believe that? That if we actually were witnesses and we believed that Christ rose from the dead, then we would look different as a church. The natural resultant of a union with Christ is the repentance of anything that would divide us. You know, one of the most beautiful stories of the recent years is the story of a friendship and relationship between two Supreme Court justices. I know that gets touchy and everyone's fighting for certain justices to be on. But I found these articles to be beautiful. The story of Justices Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Justice Antonin Scalia. One article writes this. Last year, the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg prompted much conversation on the value of friendship between people whose perspectives on life and the world differ sharply. During her career, the liberal Ginsburg maintained a long friendship with her fellow judge, Antonin Scalia, a figure who, in ideological terms at least, could scarcely have been more different, so conservative. Their friendship extended to their families who sometimes celebrated New Year's together. In one memorable photograph that she kept in her office that she, would, that she had affection for, Scalia and Ginsburg can be seen riding an elephant together. That's the picture. In an age when friend is often taken to mean someone who sees the world like I do. Think about it. You are friends only with people who sees the world like you do. It is a remarkable image. In the recent years, their odd couple friendship has been the subject of op-eds, radio shows, and even an opera. They loved opera so much, they created an opera about them. And in one of the songs that is sung, it goes this way. We are different. We are one. Different in our interpretation of written texts. One in our reverence for the Constitution and the institution that we serve. From our years together at the D.C. Circuit, we were best buddies. 
We disagreed now and then, but when I wrote for the court and received a Scalia dissent, the opinion ultimately released was notably better than my initial circulation. Justice Scalia nailed all the weak spots, the applesauce, the argol bargol, and gave me just what I needed to strengthen the majority opinion. He was a jurist of captivating brilliance and wit with a rare talent to make even the most sober judge laugh. The press referred to this energetic fervor, astringent intellect, peppery pose, acumen, and affability, all apt descriptions. He was eminently quotable, his pungent opinion so clearly stated that his words never slipped from the reader's grasp. Would you describe the person that you care, you disagree with vehemently in this way, in these beautiful words that you argue with all the time? Would you be able to say that you sit across and admire what they disagree with you about, that it transforms even your understanding of what you are arguing? You see, we've lost that because we don't know how to love even when we disagree. So when there is a countercultural example that is so beautiful and alien that it captures our imagination and longings, it's salt. It grabs our attention. It's light. It's beautiful. It's not what anyone is doing right now in this cancel culture that you and I experience daily. Dr. Keller summarizes everything in this beautiful way. If your fundamental is a man dying on the cross for his enemies. If the very heart of your self-image and your religion is a man praying for his enemies as he died for them, sacrificing for them, loving them, if that sinks into your hearts, it's going to produce the kind of life that the early Christians produced, the most inclusive possible life out of the most exclusive possible claim. And that is, this is the truth. But what is the truth? The truth is a God becoming weak, loving, and dying for the people who opposed him, dying, and forgiving them. This is captivating. This is beautiful. And this transforms the church. The second point a description of Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira. And so we find the powerful witness of the church and its unity surrounded by these two contextual narratives. It's a, com it's a commentary and what clearly unifies and what will cause deep and painful divisions in the church. These are stories of two very similar generosities. When you read it up front, you're like, this sounds the same. They both sold land, they both gave it to the apostles at their feet, and they took it and they gave it to the poor. But there are two very different conclusions. One narrative describing what actions can unite the church and the other causing fracturing of the unity so grievous that the Holy Spirit dealt with it speedily and would strike deep fear into the hearts of every member of the church and even those outside who heard about what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. It is this comparing and contrasting, this juxtaposition of Barnabas and Ananias 
that should help us understand what God was saying, that unity of the church is so important. So we look at chapter 4, verse 36, and it says this. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold the field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias and with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it still not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And his wife, Sapphira, would directly follow his death about three hours later, lie to the Holy Spirit and the apostles, and die exactly where her husband died only three hours before. What threatened the early church in its infancy and would continue to threaten the future of the church was dealt swiftly by the Holy Spirit. And we have to take heed. What really happened? Why were they killed? Barnabas was the son of encouragement who voluntarily gave his own land and selling it and giving it so that there wasn't a needy person among them. That should be something that we find beautiful, right? When I was reading it, I was like, wow, how did he do that? Ananias and his wife was a couple who wanted to have the same kind of respect from others, the same kind of credibility that Barnabas had, but ultimately when they sold the land, they looked at the money and they were like, hey, wife, wow, that's a lot. Why don't we just take some of that out and then we'll give the rest to the church? Is that the reason why they were killed? Because they kept some of it back? No, the apostles explained it. They said, the land was yours. It's not ours. This isn't communism. We weren't saying you have to give all of us your land. It is up to you. Barnabas chose to do it. You are choosing to do it. And not only that, even after you sold the land, you could have kept it. You could have given part of it. You could have done whatever you wanted to do with it. The craziest part was that the apostles weren't accusing them of not giving enough, but lying to the Spirit of God that they were giving all. Why then did they give only to hide and hold back what was their own to keep? You see, their motive was selfish from the beginning. They wanted to look generous and sacrificial. The giving was never about the community. The giving was never about the flourishing of the poor. It was about what they looked like when they gave. And the question we have to ask ourselves is this. Is Christianity about what you look like in front of other people? Or is it about the broken people who are walking through that door? 
That whatever you give, whether it's money, whether it's your gifts, whether it's your talent, is it being used to bring healing and life to those who need it? Or is it just a show? Or do you actually care about that person who is hurting? They wanted the look of holiness, but in their hearts and in their private arenas of their soul, giving and sacrifice was not about loving others. Other people were used and useful so that they looked holy and pious. Either you are one in soul and heart with Jesus who actually cared so deeply for his enemies who would reject him that he would give his own life, that he would give of himself everything to heal them and to love them. Because it surely wasn't for God because it was for them. They wanted to look right, not be right. Why is this important? So that they can be powerful witnesses of the resurrection of Christ, but instead they chose just the look of righteousness. Ananias and Sapphira wanted to set themselves apart from the very community by saying that my piety makes me better, makes me look like someone who cares. Their actions were against the very heart of the Holy Spirit. Their actions were contrary to the spirit of community being built. One heart, one soul. Their actions betrayed their own personal integrity. Their actions betrayed the unity of the community. Their actions betrayed the witness to the lost community around them, their actions were utterly selfish and made to only look pious for optics. They had absolute freedom to keep whatever it is that they owned, but they gave it up only to look like they were generous. You see, our greatest temptation as Christianity, Christians will be to be like Barnabas without loving the very Savior who compelled him. I'm going to say it again. Our greatest temptation in Christianity will be to look like someone who is like Barnabas without loving the Savior that he loved. Or equally devastating for us as Christians will be to give like Ananias out of fear of God's wrath and punishment. This is not the gospel. After hearing about what happened to Ananias, the description of what happened in the early church when they lied to the Holy Spirit and being killed, it is not a prescription of what God is going to do to us when we lie or when we do something untrustworthy. Some of us might be sitting here thinking this, I'm just waiting for God to punish me like I read in this text to give me something, an illness, to take away a loved one, for me to lose my job, lose my community, to teach me a lesson. You see, this is not what Christianity, what the gospel is saying. We are not a community of fear. We're not a community of performance, of piety, to show other people that we love God by what we do. Do you understand the description of Ananias who received this swift judgment from God. When we read the text, you know what went through my heart? I'm just like him. 
That there are times I remember when I would hear stories in my youth and a pastor would come at a retreat and speak about this person who wanted to give everything to God. So he surrendered everything that he had. Then he went on the mission field and lived on nothing. I was challenged, but at the same time, I was like, I don't know if I can do that. I know that guy did it, but I don't know if I can do that. And I remember a flood of guilt and shame came over my heart that I cannot be loved by God because I wasn't willing to sacrifice the way that this missionary did. The reality is, as we read the story of Ananias, we have to believe and know that we are half-hearted creatures like Ananias, that we offer to God offerings, hoping and believing that we want to love God, and yet there are parts of us that would hold back to take back some of the things that we belong to us, hiding it, hoping that God wouldn't notice, but God does. The death, the swift death and judgment that we deserve as those who are half-hearted creatures, Christ himself took that on and he was punished on our behalf. The reason why we can be so free before God, why we can know that we are loved, And to never doubt that love is because Christ was punished for being half-hearted creatures like maybe we feel at times. To know that we can be loved as Christ himself who did everything right is loved. That's who we are. Not because we will do the right things, we will give the right way. Not because we will be perfect in following God, but because of what Christ has done. He looks at us with pleasure and joy. To anyone who is in this room filled with guilt and shame that you cannot be like this person and that person whom you've seen, the Bible sets you free. The gospel sets you free. For Christ took the wrath that we deserve and we only receive the pleasure that Christ deserves. And for that, we are granted endless joy in worship. And lastly, Jesus and Barnabas. Have you asked yourself this question? Why is Barnabas' sacrifice so beautiful? It's what we wouldn't do. It seems, when I was thinking about it, overwhelming to think that we could ever do anything like that, right? Have you thought about it? Would you be able to sell everything you own? You know what the first thing I was thinking was like, where would my wife and kids live if I sold everything? What about all the money you put into their college fund, right? I'm like putting money away. And sometimes, you know, my daughter Bailey, she's like acting crazy. I'm like, oh, do I have to save money for this one? Did it, when you read this part of being, selling everything so for the sake of these strangers and these poor, did it make you feel uncomfortable? Because it did me. We will find ourselves identifying more with Ananias than Barnabas. So when we read passages about radical giving like this, God's command for the church in giving is what we should Not give out of compulsion or force, but it says out of joy. How then do we move from being afraid to give joyfully and generously? 
Because we identify so easily with Ananias and we are so fearful that God is going to ask us to do what Barnabas did, let me relieve this tension for you. The picture of Barnabas is someone who is a Levite, an office called by God to lead people in worship, and at the same time, it describes him as a landowner from Cyprus. The reason why this should be peculiar is when you read about Barnabas, you're like, why are these two weird details here, right? Because back in the past, when people talked about Cyprus, people would say, what good could come from Cyprus? That the person that Barnabas came from a background, maybe a place, a den of thieves, just like the way that they described Jesus. What good can come from Nazareth? And a Levite, in its description, in the past, in the Old Testament, didn't own lands. But what we find is that he was from the Levitical clan, and yet he owned the land. And not only did he own a land, but he is from a background that we don't particularly find uplifting. Why is this so significant? Why do we find what Barnabas did both terrifying and beautiful? Barnabas, as a Levite, was a priest who offered sacrifice on behalf of God's people who felt shame and guilt about the sins they committed knowingly and even sins that they committed unknowingly. But it all pointed to the true high priest who didn't just give the land that he owned, but he gave up heaven. What was his right and claim? It pointed to Jesus who gave up all, everything that he deserves as a righteous son of God. He gave it all so that when God looks at us, he looks at a righteous person, that you never have to approach the throne of God with guilt and shame, no matter your past, because Christ paid it all. He took the swift judgment of God because we are more like Ananias than Barnabas. You see, when we see such beautiful sacrifice for us who are the enemy, the undeserving, it should captivate our hearts. It should move us that one who deserves such Judgment from God instead receives the pleasure of God. Do you believe that today as you're sitting in this room, walking in with all your baggage from your past and how you failed, do you feel the very pleasure of God? It is not because we're pious. It is not because we give more than anyone else. It is because of the finished work of Christ. And that should move us. Our generosity cannot come from us trying harder to be more generous. Do you remember the steps that the people, the early church took to become radically generous? They didn't put a graph and said, this is our goal to be this generous. Let's follow through these steps. And here's the biblical. They didn't do that. They sat and they cried out to God in the ordinary means of prayer. They knew who they were, half-hearted creatures. They knew what was before them, all the broken, poor, and everyone gathering. And so they cried out to God and asked the Holy Spirit for strength to be a witness to the resurrection of Christ. And when they were filled by the Holy Spirit with power, they became generous, joyfully generous. 
Not because they had to, because it was their possession, but because they wanted to. So what? What can we do as a church? The number one thing we are called if we want to see transformation in our church is that we must come together to know we're not going to fix what's happening in our hearts, our half-hearted creatureness by trying harder with willpower. What do we need to do as a church? Let's pray. Pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit, such powerful assurance and witness of who Christ is, the resurrected Savior who takes pleasure in us, that we find so beautiful that it would transform us and our reluctance to give generously, to no longer hold to things in this world as ours, but to give generously to love those that disagree with us for if we become a church who are differing in our opinions and yet love in our soul and hearts one another in unity it will become a beautiful beautiful picture to the world that just loves canceling others so what it then is the biblical guardrails for giving we must pray and as we are filled with the Spirit, we must take care of one another with the gifts that God has given us. And in this case, in giving, here are Bible's biblical commands for giving. Number one, we have to give will, willingly and cheerfully. Not out of compulsion, not because we have to, not out of guilt and shame, but willingly and cheerfully. Number two, this must become a regular pattern in our life, not just a once in a while giving. And number three, it must be proportionate to one's ability. As God has willed in your life, in your current job, as God has given you the ability to give, whether it's a dollar to tens of thousands of dollars, according to what God has given you. Number four, we must be generous. And number five, we must be sacrificial. And this is impossible if we don't find Christ the one who gave willingly, joyfully, for us who are his enemies, beautiful. Let's pray. Dear God, we are half-hearted creatures who only deserve your wrath and eternal damnation. And yet, because of your son, we receive only pleasure, joy, and love from you. And so we delight in that mercy. Would you help us become a church that doesn't give out of compulsion, but that gives in unity, care, and love, even those that we may disagree with vehemently, yet consider friends, fellow brothers and sisters in the church that we work together because of our Savior who loved us when we were once his enemy. Would you transform